Yep. That's quite a spin to the topic. What? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I'll try to real... keep it PG, but yeah. But it's a it's a real problem. Yeah. 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 I had no idea, honestly. Yeah. Sorry for saying sorry media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kerpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Little. And I'm Dr. Yola Kerpenstein, and this is the Fur Podcast. Yes, it is. That was one of the smoothest starts we've ever had. I know, and we did 72 of them, I think. Easily. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so, 72 starts, and this is the first time you get it right. I know. Uh, practice makes perfect. <laughs> yeah. So our special guest, who we'll introduce in a minute, um, if you if you listen to any of our episodes, you'll notice that I have a really hard time starting. So I was I was practicing. I was ready for today. Yes, and and Dr. Susan, I was telling just a second ago that I have no idea what we're going to talk about. So okay. it's time to introduce our guest and our topic, so I can have like fifty milliseconds to prepare. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm really pleased that we have. Um, Another guest, I'm trying to think, we've only, so it's on feline behavior, and we've had, what, we've had Dr. Horowitz on twice, mm -hmm. and somebody else, oh, Terry oh, Curtis. Curtis. Yeah. Terry Curtis, yes, so you're, you're, so we have Dr. Michael Delgado with us today, and you're, you're kind of following in good, good company, I guess. Um, we've really tried to do a fair bit of feline behavior, because it doesn't get, you know, enough talked about enough. So I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself, Dr. Delgado. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, so yeah, I am Dr. Michael Delgado. I am a postdoctoral fellow at the School of Veterinary Medicine at UC Davis, where I work with Dr. Tony Buffington and Dr. Melissa Bain. They are my mentors at UC Davis. And um, my research primarily is looking at the health and behavior of neonatal kittens. Um, primarily orphans, because that's um, definitely a population that we've dealt with a lot in the Davis area. And I also do research looking at social interactions between adult cats in homes, uh, specifically around feeding behavior. So I um, have some ongoing research looking at how the feeding behavior of cats is affected depending on whether they live alone or whether they live with another cat. And just completed a study looking at a phenomenon called contra-free loading in adult cats, which is the preference to work for food rather than get it for free. So we're uh, just finished that study and writing it up for publication right now. Um, I'm also I a cat behavior. I love that term, contra-freeloading. Contra I know, it sounds, um, I mean. It, we'll have to talk like, more about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm also a cat behavior consultant. So I offer consulting services to cat owners who are having behavior problems with their cats. So that's something I've been doing for quite a while. I got my start about 20 years ago working at the San Francisco SPCA in the cat behavior program there. So a lot of shelter experience, and then decided to go back to school and go into research. So many cool topics to talk about. I can't wait. The first, and, and I, you know, what I'm, what made me really excited was we have not talked about kittens at all during the podcast. So this is the time that we're, we need to talk about kittens. Let's start with that. So kittens, give us yeah. the, uh, the, the rundown kitten behavior. Everything you, you need to know about kittens. You do not do. <laughs> so we have 12 hours. Um, <laughs> I mean, first of all, like Susan wrote 
the article that for me really, um, really helped me kind of formulate my research ideas and plans because she wrote her playing mom article, oh, which was yes. about caring for orphaned, um, I think cats and dogs was, it? Um, no, just cats. Okay. Yeah. She's like, no, not dogs. Um, so that was an article that I definitely turned to when I started my research at UC Davis. And, you know, I worked in a shelter with adult cats. I'd never worked with neonates before. So when yeah. I got to Davis at the vet school, there's an organization called the Orphan Kitten Project. And it's yeah. a veterinary student run group. They take in orphans from the community that um, don't have moms. They foster them. They get them into foster homes. They train foster caretakers on bottle feeding these kittens. And they do the vaccines and follow up on their medical care and then get them adopted. So these students are devoting lots and lots of time into caring for these kittens, which is a great experience for them because a lot of, um, I think a lot of veterinarians don't get a lot of hands-on experience with neonatal kittens and don't always know what to do with them or what's okay as far as treatment goes. But it was obvious that we had this kind of population of kittens that we could draw from to do research with and try to understand better what their needs are. So that was kind of the first thing that landed in my lap was like, okay, let's utilize these, you know, anywhere from one to 300 kittens coming into the UC Davis system every summer that are taken, you know, so they end up separated from their moms in different ways. I think it's, it's never with bad intentions. Um, sometimes it's truly the kittens have been abandoned. But sometimes it's good Samaritans who don't realize that mom's just off hunting and that she's going to come back. Mm -hmm. They find these little helpless kittens crying and they take them to the animal shelter. Unfortunately, that can be a death sentence for a lot of these kittens because most shelters do not run 24 hours a day. It's not humane to leave these kittens, especially when they're, you know, just two weeks or younger um, for any length of time without being fed. So it, it can be quite a conundrum for shelters to care for these kittens. So immediately I was like, whoa, this is like not something that I encountered in the shelter I worked at. This is a very specialized population. What are their needs? And there's definitely guidelines for their needs, but there's not a lot of research behind mm -hmm. the development of those guidelines or trying to figure out, you know, what kinds of issues they might have around feeding. And of course, as soon as we started working with them, we learned pretty quickly that they have a problem with um, sucking on each other. Um, <laughs> and um, so yeah. that's currently where my research has taken me is genital sucking in kittens that are orphaned. Yeah, yeah. so we, wow. we may that's, need a surgeon in some cases there. Yeah. That's quite a spin to the topic. What? Yes. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'll try to keep real, it PG, but yeah. But it's a, it's a real problem. Yeah. 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 I had no idea, honestly. Yeah. And what I've what we've seen is just, well, first of all, foster caretakers get very frustrated. They're really trying to prevent this behavior. It can cause injuries. Um, so a kitten who's a victim of sucking um, can end up with um, strictures in their penis and they need sometimes surgery. Um, I mean, some kittens are so badly injured that it's actually most humane to euthanize them. And then of course the kitten, I didn't know, the kitten who is nursing on their litter mates is also ingesting urine and feces. Yeah. So then they get digestive upset. Maybe it gets misinterpreted as failure to thrive. They're not eating their formula and they're very ill and it's not great for them either. The problem is with orphans, they're already being deprived of maternal contact. And really the best, the most effective way to manage the situation right now seems to be, um, <laughs> sorry, um, seems to be um, 
separating them, which, you know, if they're already not experiencing that physical contact with the mom, which is such a huge part of their life when they're young, and now you're completely depriving them of physical contact, it just breaks my heart that that seems to be the only effective thing right now. So we're also trying to figure out whether or not we can introduce a type of kitten pacifier that Mm. might reduce some of the sucking behavior. We're currently testing the Suro kitty as a surrogate. A Suro kitty. Yes, as a a surrogate, you know, oral enrichment. Because, you know, the the other thing I didn't know going into this was that the function of nursing is not just to get milk. It's, there's all this non-nutritive sucking that that happens as well, and really kind of speaks to the strength of that instinct to nurse. Yeah. And the bonding experience and probably the, you know, hormones that are released that feel good during that whole process. So it's been really, for me, I've learned a lot about this population and just how little is known about them and how um, ill-equipped we are to, we're not a good mom, right? Even though if we're playing mom, (laughs) it's like, we're we're a pretty poor substitute and uh, people are doing amazing jobs. I mean, there's so many foster caretakers that are dedicated getting up every two hours to feed them in the middle of the night like completely like blows me away how much effort people put into these little babies. And of course, some of them still don't, don't make it. And yeah. so it's also really heartbreaking. Um, but anything I think we can do to prevent the negatives, the potential negatives, of course, we, there's probably some advantages of being a bottle baby. You're not competing for food. You can eat as much formula as you want. Yeah. So mm. there's, there's certain, I think, benefits maybe, or, you know, that are not, it's not all bad, yeah. but I do so, feel uh, like, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 this is, this is really great. So as a veterinarian, if you get a little bunch of kittens uh, at your doorstep and someone leaves it, what, is, what are the things that you need to do to make those kittens thrive instead of sending them immediately to UC Davis? <laughs> yeah, I think um, having a good relationship with local rescue groups and shelters is definitely key. So this is really about having a network and a community effort to raise up, take the village. And some, I mean, honestly, you know, I think some foster caretakers really know their stuff as far as, you know, how to care for these babies. And you have to identify those people. Who are the people that really love caring for this population, have educated themselves on this population. And, you know, there's uh, the cat LVT, Ellen Carosa. She's a licensed vet tech um, at the Nova Cat Clinic in yeah. Virginia. She knows so much about this population as well. So there are people out there that really specialize in their care. So I think making those kinds of connections from what I hear, and I'm not a veterinarian, so I don't deal with like, is it safe to give them this medication or what antibiotics is, you know, should broad spectrum or, it's, you know, so it's like, I'm like, mm, not touching that. But, you know, as far as the behavior and the care, um, you know, I think keeping them warm, keeping them moist, keeping them fed, giving them tactile sensations that they would experience that are similar to what mom would do as far as like toothbrushing them. So, you know, touching them with with soft things. So they're getting all of the same physical sensations that they would get from mom are probably going to be most calming and inspecting them daily. Like they need to be weighed every day. So Mm -hmm. some of our research, you know, one of the things we noticed all the kittens who passed away in the study and they have a high mortality rate. So we lost quite a few. Um, As soon as they stopped growing, that was like really a warning, a red flag. So, so they need to be weighed daily, check 
their entire bodies for signs of sucking. So you'll see if they're a sucker, their face will be wet, the fur will be slicked back around their cheeks. And if they're being sucked on, the genitals and the stomach are the most commonly targeted area, but sometimes ears can be targeted. Tails. Sometimes sometimes. Tails, <laughs> yeah. So, so really giving them a good thorough inspection at least once a day, which is not hard because you have to feed them, you know, Multiple. six to 12 times a day. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's really, it's really good to see um, somebody concentrating on this because it, as you mentioned, um, there's not a, a wealth of at least published data. Yeah. I think there's a wealth of experience out there amongst people who do work with these kittens. It's just not widely accessible, right? Yeah. So, um, and so much of what they need early in life is, falls in under that realm of, of behavior or really playing mum, right? And, and the nutrition part's easy. It's the rest of it that, that isn't. Yeah. Um, and we, we assume a lot. So you made me think of something that happened to me probably a year or two ago. Tony Buffington um, talked to me at a conference and he said, uh, you know, in your textbook and in your article, you had some data on, you know, uh, uh, good ambient temperatures and humidity levels. And he, and he says, so where did that come from? And I'm like, not really sure. So as you start, and this sometimes happens, and you've probably seen this sometimes too, yellow with surgery things, you start chasing like who said that, right? And then you get back, well, this book said it. And then you try to see where they referenced it. And they referenced another book that said it. And in the end, it turns out it's not research. It's just somebody said. <laughs> yes. yes, that happens. Um, there's lots of those yeah. kind of myths. The other one that I'm always chasing is whether or not cats want their food and water separated. Oh, there's another one. <sighs> Cannot find any evidence for that claim, yeah. but it, it gets passed around a lot. And I'm like, I want to know like who tested it. So we are also looking at the effects of temperature and humidity. That was, I'm sure Tony was like getting ready for our project. Yes. When and now I know what it was. Yeah. 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 So we've been um, looking at incubators at different settings and seeing if that has mm. an influence on growth. Um, it's been challenging this year. We've had a hard time with recruitment due to COVID. The shelter yeah. situation has changed a lot. So this year has been a bit of a bummer on the research end, but we're yeah. still plugging away. We just got three new recruits today. Kittens going into an incubator today. So, um, so yeah, we're interested in whether or not there, there are benefits to having an incubator versus um, people just keeping kittens at their sure. normal room temperature. But yeah. certainly here in Northern California, um, where I'm more inland, I'm in Sacramento, in the summer, it gets really hot and people are blasting their air conditioning. And, and it's dry. It's dry. So they're keeping the kittens in, you know, I mean, they always, you know, I think they always provide a heat source, but whether or not the ambient temperature is is sufficiently warm is, is an important question because, you know, the other thing is if you look at humans, the NICU is like, get so much resource, like from a hospital, right? That's like a precious center of the hospital. And in animal care, it's, they're, they're almost treated like it's not worth treating them. It's a bit of an afterthought, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So can I go back to the sucking part? And <laughs> I'm really interested in the, the reason why. So are you saying that the mother prevents the sucking or are they more satisfied when they drink with their mother and they don't feel the need of sucking? Where comes this sucking? Because I, I would think that if you feed them every two, three, uh, every two hours, they should be filled and happy and that sort of thing. Still, they suck. So is that a stimulatory, of stimulatory deficiency or is it a mom deficiency? Is it a milk deficiency? What is it? 
These are all great questions. So we did a pretty broad survey of foster caretakers. We got 400 participants who gave us very detailed information about their litters of kittens. And these included mother reared kittens, orphaned kittens, kittens who were sucking, kittens who were not sucking. And I think it was like one of the mother reared kittens had sucking, but almost zero. So yeah. it's, it's really not seen in kittens who are reared with their mothers. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing, so we had, um, in our incubator study, we had 68 kittens and about a quarter of them became suckers. But even within a litter, you can have one is a sucker and one is not. Um, you could have all, all of them are suckers. Um, so every possible combination of, um, of debauchery in these kitten litters. And so, I, I mean, I do think, and the other thing when we did the survey is we didn't find any strong relationships of you know, feeding schedule or, um, temperature, noise in the environment, how much they were handled, whether or not they had a stuffed animal. So I do believe that it's probably part of it is an intrinsic stress response that increases their search behavior. Um, you will see a lot of these kittens do seem to start sucking around the time that they become a little more mobile, like five mm. to seven days of age. Um, and I don't know, like we haven't been able to look at this in as much detail as I would like to say, oh, it's just, you know, because it's four days after mom's gone, they kind of are fed up and um, reach their stress peak. But I think that there, there's something different about these kittens. And if we can't explain it by external factors, then I have to think maybe we need to think about internal factors like, um, you know, biostress markers that might give us a clue. I mean, certainly I would love to follow some of them into adulthood and see if they are also more prone to other signs of stress like FIC. Yeah that's like a long-term project that I don't have funding for right now, but I'd love to be able to see if these are, if these are the cats that end up with pica later or that are, you know, nursing on blankets or just have, you know, much higher stress responses than kittens who do not show this behavior. But as far as the, the why, so when kittens are young, they're spending, you know, 50 to 80 plus percent of their time in contact with their mother. They're doing a lot of nursing and not all of that nursing is producing milk. So, so again, it's not just whether or not they're full. And in fact, what, what I noticed when we were analyzing a lot of video of, of kittens from our study is that some of, some of them would get fed and the um, foster caretaker would put them back in, the, in their incubator and they would immediately go for sucking. So it was yeah. almost like it stimulated it more yeah. than anything else. So maybe the experience was just not long enough to be satisfying. And that's why we were yeah. hoping that having some kind of pacifier would give them that physical yeah. sensation. To be honest, so far, it's not helping too much. So well, it does beg the question. I've wondered that too, because when they're, when they're bottle fed, whatever way you bottle feed them, right? And there's a whole variety of ways to do that. Yeah. It's, it, it, it is um, quicker to get that unit of nutrition than if they were with mom, right? So they're kind that of shortchanged yeah. on, on their suckling time. And especially if you are feeding really young guys with um, nasal or so oral gastric tubes. Oh, yeah. There's no They're not getting any. Oh. There's no sucking behavior at all. So I would, I don't know um, how often oral gastric feeding is used, but it'd be interesting oh. to look at that. And and I'll ask you one more question um, about this about this, and that is my impression has been the younger the kittens are orphaned, the more likely we'll see it. Whereas if you see the guys who are like six, seven weeks of age, and even maybe I'd say even maybe as young as four to five, right? And yep. they're just on that tipping point of when they could have made it without mom. I don't tend to see it in those. Do you find the same thing? 
Yeah, our survey yeah. suggested the younger they were separated from their yeah. mother, the higher the risk for right. sucking. So I think if they can get past that kind of three to four week period, they're yeah. probably not going to. I mean, some of them I think still will, but it's almost like, I mean, and it makes sense. They're, yeah. That's the time when they start weaning onto solid food anyway. So the urge to suck is probably decreasing. The need to suck is decreasing. So it's... Um, but I feel like once they start, it, it doesn't necessarily go away at weaning period. I no. think it sometimes decreases, but I remember at the shelter, we would have kittens who were still sucking and I've talked to foster caretakers and yeah, they're still trying to reintroduce them with some issues. So yeah, so it does make you wonder if there's some intrinsic stress relief or stress reduction. Mm -hmm. And it, it may be that there's more than one thing at play too, right? The answer doesn't have to be one thing. Absolutely. So if you have a, a little sucker in your midst, what do you do? Yeah, you can, what I recommend for most people is physical separation um, with supervised, um, bringing them back together when they're sleeping so that they can have some physical contact, but it really has to be when they're supervised because they will just go right back to each other. And I think there's probably an olfactory component. Like once they start sucking, I think they can, just like they identify their, their mother's nipple using scent as one of the cues, I think that they're just attracted to that area. Um, you know, sometimes people build little like cardboard barriers to put in between them so they can still be in the same general container. Some people do clothing. Uh, it makes mm. me a little uncomfortable um, for various yeah. reasons. And it, yeah. and the problem is really that all of these things don't address the underlying cause of the problem. It's just managing it. So that's why I was really hoping that we can find this thing that will address the need to suck and the need for that physical contact without um, just trying to force them to not do it, um, but instead try to take away this strong desire to do it. And the idea of slower feeding is very interesting to yeah. me, actually, now that you bring that up. Um, yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, and the root of feeding too, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. You know, because people sometimes see with eyedroppers or syringes or orogastric tubes. So, you know, you, because there's little sucking component to those methods, you would wonder. Is that yeah. part of it? Yeah. Yeah. So there's so much to learn um, about, uh, about orphan, uh, orphan kittens. Um, here's something I'd be interested in your take on. It's often said or suggested that kittens that were hand raised, that were orphaned, are more likely to have behavior problems later in life. Right? So I'm sure yeah. you've heard that. Um, yep. That's one of those things that I don't know if there's any data behind. I certainly have had that experience uh, I can remember vividly one particular kitten who easily fit that category, but that's an N of one, right? So Sure, sure. And was he a singleton as well? Singleton. Yeah. Which so I, I think, suspect is a bigger issue, yeah. I think so too, honestly. I mean, I think the the mother-reared kittens, so we did a couple of uh, temperament tests on some of the orphans versus mother-reared kittens because we were also doing some other research. We were looking at uh, telomere lengths in mother-reared and orphaned kittens yeah. to see if there was any... Um, effects and we didn't find any but we were also just seeing if the personalities were different so we did this little quick temperament test and what i noticed is that the mother reared kittens when we did the temperament test it was in a strange environment and they were like where's mom they were just panicked and the orphans were like come over like hey who are you you know and in both cases they didn't the kittens didn't know me they were in a strange environment but the mother the orphans were much more comfortable with people so you know, from a pet perspective, I don't know if it's always a bad thing. Um, I think a lot of people, I mean, obviously there's tons of orphaned kittens that are pets. I don't think that they make bad pets. I don't think that there's anything wrong with them. If, you know, we'd, I think we would know if there were really, really serious problems. I do think that being deprived of both your mother and your litter mates yeah. is a problem. Yeah. I think kittens in general need 
to have a playmate and they need, I mean, we know that if they don't have litter mates, but just the mom, then they try to play with the mom and she actually gets irritated with them and doesn't want to spend time with them. So, um, so I think, you know, it's definitely protective to have litter mates. There's always going to be kittens that have issues and certainly they get feedback from biting that might make them more likely to bite in the future that has nothing to do with their orphan status. So it's, you know, it's not just a, you know, they have problems. You know, there's been one study showing that early weaning was associated with increased um, report of like stereotypic behavior. Um, but the, the early weaning status was not, um, it was a survey. So it was just asking people when their kittens were weaned. And I don't know, it was in Finland. So maybe people there have much more information about when their kittens were weaned. I know here in the US, you know, most cats are adopted either from the street or from shelters. And I have no idea when my kittens were weaned. So Exactly. A lot of us just don't have that detailed information. I think if you get your cat from a breeder, you might know that, but that's such a small percent of the owned cats in, um, at least in North America. And so, what's the ideal weaning time? Um, it depends on who you talk to. I think um, from a shelter perspective, it's as soon as possible because they're really trying to minimize the amount of care that it takes to get these kittens, um, you know, cared for by people. Most people don't want to get up and feed kittens you know, every two hours. So if they can, you know, just eat solid food, there's, there's actually, I think people are push kittens to be weaned, especially orphans, um, earlier than they should be. Um, they should, they should be feeding from mom until anywhere from eight to, I think like 12 to 16 weeks is kind of normal and even yeah. beyond. So, um, you know, and weaning is not just, um, it, it's not just, like it's eight, it's six weeks is time to switch. It's, I mean, your bo their bodies are going through physical changes, their teeth, their digestive system, and also the relationship with their mother is changing. And so for mother reared kittens, I think there's this kind of added stress of, of maybe the mother is not as receptive. And so there's a change in, in their relation, social relationships too, that we kind of don't think about. Mm -hmm. um, whereas with orphans, we're just kind of like, hurry up and eat your solid food so I don't have to bottle feed you anymore, which is kind of heartbreaking. I don't know anybody that bottle feeds kittens that are orphaned until they're 12 or 16 weeks of age. It's like not every two hours. And yeah, not. certainly not every two hours. Yeah. And luckily that doesn't last forever anyway. But I do think that people really try to push the orphans onto solid food earlier than they might be ready. Yeah, they're really caught right between the practicalities of trying to get them out of the shelter too, because they're yeah. going to survive better out of the shelter. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, if you think about their, their sensitive period, which is two to nine weeks of age, I mean, it would actually be great if they were with their permanent home within that window, which is not really how we practice fostering and, and adopting, but you know, it's, it is something that we kind of overlook that, you know, that might yeah, be. I, I think we tend to think of weaning as it's a nutritional thing when it's not just nutrition, right? It's, it's yeah. so much bigger than that. Yeah. You know, even when they're not getting the majority of the nutrition from mom, that milk still contains other factors. Um, as you say, it's a process of behavior changing. It's so much bigger than nutrition. Yeah, okay, I have a second question. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. question. And then we'll switch over next week to the next topic because we're almost at the end again. So Susan, you I get one more that. question about kids. My gosh. I know. Do you have another question, Yola? No, no, I, oh. I, I said this is the, your last chance to ask a kitten question. Oh, oh well, oh. I, so I, I'd willingly um, give you this chance to ask. I'm just curious if you can actually come up with another kitten question. <laughs> I, I can. So, so when you do a, for instance, when you have a C-section on a cat 
and mom doesn't survive it, what should you do? Whoa, well, that's, I have not encountered that situation while I've been working with kittens. Although we did have, um, uh, we had one shelter, the kittens were born prematurely. So this is kind of similar. They were definitely tiny. The smallest one was 68 grams. So small. And the mom was feral and no one in the shelter wanted to deal with mom. So they spayed her and released her and they put the kittens into foster. So it was a standard. Um, They gave her to a very, they gave the kittens to a very experienced foster caretaker. Um, They did have some health issues. Luckily we had an incubator for them so they could stay extra warm, but, um, and they all survived, which was great, but it was, um, it was definitely touch and go. And I think uh, that is not the kind of situation I would put on a new foster caretaker. So that's, that's the kind of situation you want to really have some experienced people who are comfortable handling kittens that are that small. They're very delicate. I mean, when I first started, it was like, oh, I was almost afraid to touch them. I didn't want to hurt them. They're tiny. And then there's like vet techs getting blood samples for them. And I was just like, very impressed. <laughs> oh, oh, I have to, I have to tell you, cause I know we're just about out of time, but I have to tell you that one of the, the topics I lecture on often is um, uh, retrovirus infections in cats. And I talk about a study that Julie Levy and her group did at University mm-hmm. of Gainesville, where they got blood samples from little kittens over, I think over a 12 week period, starting at two days of age. Wow. And yeah. the, the, the big takeaway for me from that study was not anything about retroviruses, but I want those techs that got blood every week starting yeah. at two days of age. Yeah, we did at one week of age and oh. the techs and vets who did it were very amazing. I was, my mind was blown. That's a special yeah. magical skill. That's a, that's a great stop because I think that uh, techs are amazing in general. So this is a big shout out for techs uh, that do that kind of work. Uh, we are at the end of the podcast. This has been awesome. I love talking about kittens. So thank you very much for this. Um, Dr. Susan. Um, but it's just episode one. It is episode one. And where can people find more information? Yeah, so this is, this is my cue to remember my lines. You can, you can see how professional we are after <laughs> Yes. So you can find out uh, more about our podcast and all of our episodes and all of our guests at perpodcast.net. And you can follow us on social media at perpodcast. So make sure to check us out and uh, find out all of the amazing guests that we have had on. And please tell a friend and consider leaving us a, a good review because that's how other people find us. And that's how we're able to reach more people with uh, the great experts like Dr. Delgado that we have on our podcast. Yeah, you get a, a, a five-star review for this. So oh. that was wonderful. I've been so. practicing. So Michael, I thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Delgado. It's amazing uh, to have you on, on board on the per, per podcast boat, yeah. board, whatever. Uh, and, uh, and we're so excited to uh, see you back next week. Thank, thank you. you so much. For the next one. Bye-bye. Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine, along with three cats, 
she also admits to owning two dogs. And you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatPetSusan. Dr. Yola Kirpenstein is a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVETSX. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove struvite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page at per podcast.